And I think that a lot of what passes for conservative aesthetics is pastiche. It is the combination of the same kinds of practices that destroy the tradition with the mere, a mere sort of sickly veneer of the way things used to be. Sanders is maybe the first politician with a natural profile who is trying to, who is actually kind of evolving beyond this sort of thing. He's using a lot of culture war red meat, frankly, to distract the media class. Governor DeSantis is a completely overhauling tertiary education in Florida. The only thing people are talking about is the college. Why is that? Well, it's because Chris Rufo on it, he, he sort of made it a centerpiece, made a splash, and all the other things that he's doing are, have been completely ignored by the media. Hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast, and we're back this week with a long-awaited conversation, at least by me, since I've had to do the booking for this conversation several times. But I promise you, it's worth it. This week's guest is John Escanis, who's written on a variety of areas. He is originally trained as an international relations analyst, but today we're talking about McLuhan and the relationship that conservatism has to technology whether it's possible for conservatives to exist at all uh, when there's technology that's transforming the underlying social patterns and traditions uh, of pretty much everyone and many related topics, how media adapts to changing technologies, what AI and, quite frankly, the existing changes with the internet will mean for how people go about their lives right now or in the near future and plenty of other related topics. If that's something you're interested in, feel free to subscribe to the podcast, and if you want to do something to help us out, the number one thing you can do is to recommend the podcast to a friend. The odds are, if you like the show, if you like what we talk about and how we talk about it, then there's going to be someone you know who likes the same things. And not only are you helping us by recommending it to that person, but you're also helping that person find something that they might like and that might teach them something new about the world. Either case, thanks for listening, and here's John Esconis. Is modern conservatism a revolutionary ideology? Uh, yes, and more dangerously, it doesn't understand why it is. So, you know, modern conservatism is explicitly, the whole point of it is to resist revolutionary ideologies with utopian aspirations, you know, ranging from communism to fascism to, uh, to um, progressivism as a kind of, as a progressivism as a theory of the scientific administration of society. But it is a revolutionary ideology because... It focuses on ideology, and in focusing on ideology, it's ignored technology and actually sort of smoothed the way to it has it's like it has this blind spot around technology, so it can't see the the influence of material changes, and therefore permits them, and therefore is in fact a revolutionary ideology. Right, right. This is really interesting because. There is a sense in which, especially nowadays in the kind of current media environment, and I'm sure we have lots of thoughts about that, um, libertarianism is sort of seen as the kind of like most inoffensive thing you could be doing, right? Yes. There's kind of like the 
the panic around whatever DeSantis is doing. There's the panic around, um, you know, at least a few months ago around what Biden was doing. There's this kind of like default, I think, assumption that like if something is happening, then it's on net bad. Right. And so libertarianism is kind of seen, I think not necessarily the kind of like market fundamentalist rhetorical version, but just the kind of like practice of not really do anything, doing anything when you have government power is kind of seen as a net positive in a way that I don't think that this would have been the case in like 2016, for example. Well, the libertarians have managed to kind of reposition themselves as pseudo centrists, right? If you can imagine, you know, they kind of, you know, the socially conservative, economically conservative, which in our society means sort of right wing, socially liberal, economically liberal. And there's two other quadrants, right? Which are socially conservative, economically liberal, which is, you know, the most popular quadrant, certainly the most popular quadrant relative to representation. And then there's the opposite, economically conservative or, uh, you know, pro-free market, et cetera, socially liberal. And this is where all the libertarians live. And they position themselves as a kind of centrist, right? They're not, they're not partisans for either side. They're inoffensive. They just want to reduce regulation and reduce government action. Uh, and it's really remarkable the sort of con job they managed to pull in that regard. Um, because <laughs> if you look at the actual damage that neoliberalism has done to the social fabric of the United States, uh, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to square with the kind of inoffensive image. Right, right. Like, the kind of version of this that I think we talked about, I, I was thinking recently, but really it was not so recent the last time, the, the last time you were on, is this kind of shift in technology, right? This, this shift in, mm-hmm. I think when we were, the last time you were on, um, really a kind of shift in um, media technologies, but now we have, you know, digital technologies. Um, you had a, once again, I'm thinking recent, I'm thinking recent, but you had a great column in Compact that I'll link about, um, how there is no, there is no conservatism. There is no kind of protection of traditions under, under this kind of level of technological change. And the question I really want to use to dive into that is sort of, there is still kind of like protectionist or like not protectionist as in kind of economically, but there is our kind of like traditionalist aesthetics, right? Mm-hmm. There is this kind of vibe. I think that is very much appealing to a lot of uh, conservative voters, particularly primary voters. It's like, we are going to defend against whatever, you know, the left, you know, vaguely gestures at the left, the left is doing right and this this kind of like seems like it kind of captures the idea the kind of like id of conservatism but if if there's nothing if there's not actually anything to kind of conserve there like what is actually happening with that right well that's a good question and i think that well the difficulty with that answer though is and this goes to the 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 point of the column in, in the argument in compact is um when we talk about being things being conserved, are we talking about the appearance of them being conserved or them actually being conserved? If you're talking about the actual traditions, the actual things that kind of give rise to human culture, human life ways. And I think that a lot of what passes for conservative aesthetics is pastiche, 
right? It's not actually, it's actually, it's the worst of both worlds. It's prestige, it's nostalgia. It is the combination of the same kinds of practices that destroy the tradition with the mere, a mere sort of sickly veneer of the way things used to be. Um, it was an amazing column of first things maybe 10 years ago on the painter, Thomas Kincaid. Do you know, do you know, do you know Thomas Kincaid? Uh, the painter? No, no. So Thomas Kincaid was this, was a painter. Uh, he styled himself as the painter of light and, uh, by all accounts, he was a fairly gifted oil painter, but he depicted these scenes of kind of, you know, down home Americana, down home country life, you know, kind of classic Kincaid image you can imagine is of, you know, a kind of Troika pulling a sleigh through the sled to a cottage in the woods, you know, with snow on fir trees all around, lit from inside by a fire, right? That kind of imagery, right? And so it's this unbelievably nostalgic imagery, but that imagery is also tied to his work practices, which can be best described as grifting. He's one of the all-time great artistic grifters. Um, you know, he employed basically sort of mass like workshops, even like Chinese workshop style painting. He would literally, he would, you know, for the originals, he would sort of sell them. He would do a little dabbing of oil painting on the final copy and then sell it as a kind of original. Uh, and they sold these on cruise ships. They sold these in galleries. He had a particular sort of, he, you know, lots of branded merchandise, calendars, you know, prints of all sorts, mugs. Uh, particularly, in, and he particularly, his audience were conservatives, especially Christian conservatives. Um, that was his sort of bread and butter. Funnily enough, he died apparently of a drug, cocaine-induced stroke in Las Vegas. Um, you know, that's, to my mind, that's what conservative settings have often amounted to, is that combination of, of destruction and nostalgia. Um, and until conservatives are committed to actually bringing back the practices and virtues that underlay those aesthetics, then it's not really worth very much, right? Like how many, like, now, now I will say there are some conservatives who are trying to do that. And, and that is a meaningful and worthwhile thing, but I think it has to be that. And I think an interesting, you know, example of this is, Donald Trump, you know, he asked, you know, what kind of aesthetics does Trump have? On the one hand, he's not, you know, he's not going into some sort of Frank Gehry or any kind of hyper-modernist or uh, uh, sort of architecture. One, you know, he signed this federal architecture uh, executive order, which was terribly written and toothless, but nonetheless committed the U.S. government to building kind of classical style buildings. But you look at his stuff and from an architecture standpoint, it's all classified as postmodernism. Because it is a combination of the kind of a gesture towards or a simulacrum of the aesthetics of, you know, an older time of grandeur and whatnot, but without any of the, the substance, right? It's gold-plated things that are made of plastic. Right. I think, like, even most diehard conservatives at least have a feeling, even if they're, or like, I think, like, most of them are willing to admit it that like large parts of the movement just feel incredibly fake. 
and um, yeah, and I mean, the question is just um, why is that, right? Like, is this something to do with technology? Something to do with kind of lifestyle, the kind of Nietzschean critique, right? Like, like, what do you mm-hmm. think is the kind of root cause of this sort of lack of the real thing? That's a great question. That's a really important question. And I think it's a question that has a lot of layers to it. Um, <laughs> For sure. I think it, you know, I think it goes to the question of, of what attracts people to conservatism. And, and by, by conservatism, we don't just mean identifying with American political conservatism, but conservatism in any sense. And, you know, I do think undeniably there is a... There is a psychological look. A lot of the, a lot of the kind of authoritarian personality psychoanalysis work is really just, you know, bunk. So I don't put much stock in it. But there is a kind of psychological like you have to be attracted to the stability of a certain kind of order. I mean, I think this is what it is, right? You have to be attracted to stability of a certain kind of order to want to be conservative. There's actually a very interesting new paper. I don't know if it was by Jonathan Haidt or he just referenced it on on Twitter, which showed, um, it's one of these sort of psychometric studies that showed really definitively that this like order versus chaos dynamic is like fun is even more fundamental, even more statistically demonstrable indicator of conservatism than other ones that they've looked at. Um, but this is the kicker, I think. So you're drawn to this order. You're drawn to some kind of continuity and social stability, but you're conditioned by society to not necessarily want to do what it takes to achieve that in its fullest sense. And frankly, you know, your condition, you might have that sort of desire for order, but you actually, you nothing in your life has led you to develop the taste and knowledge and experience to actually be able to distinguish the real thing from the fake thing, right? To distinguish the grift from the authentic thing, to distinguish the, you know, the, the the true art object or the true, like, a properly constructed house or properly constructed meal or properly constructed article of clothing from the kind of fake made in Vietnam, made in China version. I think that, that tension is, like, the fundamental thing that drives this problem. I mean, it's, it's kind of like... It, it, this is the same phenomenon, but there's kind of, like, a more obvious version of it, I think, which is that, like, people don't really kind of, like, follow through consequentially on what the policies of, you know, whatever conservative politicians actually do, right? Like, what is the actual function of, you know, like, whatever Ron DeSantis is doing with mm-hmm. regards to New College, right? Does that is that actually productive at all, right? Like, I don't know. We, we, I think we are both on the side that it's not, right? That it, a lot of it is the sort of signaling. A lot of it is not actually, you know, going to change either future electoral outcomes or kind of the quality of education that kids are actually getting. Like, what are you doing going into this kind of already kind of low-tier college? Like, a good example of kind of ideological corruption, but kind of like from a consequentialist perspective, not really going to change all that many people, right? And there's just no kind of follow-through in terms of, like, 
the kind of conservative voter or even the kind of like conservative pundit, the kind of like quote unquote elite of saying like, okay, what is the, what is the most impactful thing that, you know, Ron DeSantis could be using his power to do right now? Is he doing it? You know, how does, you know, whatever he's doing with new college, how does that rank in terms of like the most effective things, right? There's not really this kind of thinking in terms of kind of impact or in terms of prioritization at all. And well, I think, I think DeSantis is, DeSantis is maybe the first politician with a national profile who is trying to, who is actually kind of evolving beyond this. I think he's doing something that's very interesting, which is he's using a lot of culture war red meat, frankly, to distract the media class on both right and left. The right on um, in terms of winning earned media, winning hits, earning plaudits, the left earning attention and opprobrium. You know, <sighs> Governor DeSantis is completely overhauling care share education in Florida. And yet the only thing people are talking about is New College. Why is that? Well, it's because he put Chris Rufo on it and he, he was sort of made it a centerpiece and made a splash. And all the other things that he's doing are, have been completely ignored by the media. Which I think is brilliant, actually. Um, and I think he's done that with a few other issue areas as well. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to succeed, but I think it's more interesting than meets the eye. I think, but I think many conservative politicians prior to DeSantis were content to, they did, they did the same thing, but in, in, a, in a really negative way, which is that they would use the, the culture war issues to gain the, the, the support of the movement, but then actually basically betray that movement. Um, in their actual policy making. Right, um, right. So this is okay, so DeSantis practically well, he's placing restrictions on on kind of DEI statements. He's curtailing the amount of money that can be uh, or the amount of state funding that can be spent on um, administrative staff in universities. He's um, cutting off kind of funding to, you know, like quote unquote critical theory programs. Uh, queer theory, so on, right? The so kind of activist programs. Um, is is there anything I'm missing there? Is, is that like oh, what? Yeah. Well, okay. so he's, well, what else he's, has he done? Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert. I've barely looked at this, but he's overhauled the boards of not just New College, but a number of other um, Florida state colleges. He's brought in Ben Sass as university president of the University of Florida, one of the largest and most prestigious public university systems in America. He stood up the Hamilton College, the Liberal Arts Honors College, with completely new tenure lines and, um, and you know, hand-picked selection for who's going in those lines at University of Florida in Gainesville. Um, and I think he's probably done more that I'm not aware of that's barely been reported on. Um, so... What's, that's, I think that is what's interesting about DeSantis, and frankly, that's a reason why um, people who are paying attention to the, the nitty-gritty details have been impressed, interested. Okay, that's interesting. Like, how do you how do you find out about these things? Because I think that I'm kind of somewhat in contact, you know, with both kind of like um, right wing and and some left wing kind of. Um, people who are very much, you know, following politics, who have kind of education policy as their wheelhouse. Um, 
and yeah, I, I've not heard the kind of full extent of this um, nearly as much. Yeah, I mean, I think it helps to have <laughs> have, have some friends and collaborators who are involved in this effort. Yeah, this, like, this is like one area in particular where uh, you know, might know a little bit more, but. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. But just so, to, to circle back to the bigger point, though, I mean, I think my kind of mental model of this is that there was a period. It really begins with Ronald Reagan, where television ate democracy. Right. Right. Where where what began to matter more, and I think this is a function partially of the deregulation that begins under Jimmy Carter, which really diffuses policymaking out of the central or the federal government into um, public-private partnerships, into um, regulatory frameworks that have sort of porous barriers between regulators and companies that are regulating, um, into the judicial branch and you know, very deep regulatory decisions within that branch. So I think what happens is basically American policymaking becomes much more complex after deregulation. And frankly, much more out of the hands of um, any one legislator, any one person in the executive branch. And part of the way that that's made up for is through the generate creation of a kind of symbolic politics that occurs on television that doesn't have a one-to-one -one relationship with what's actually going on in government. Um, and I think you see that from kind of from Reagan until Trump. And I think it's begun to really break. I think it's, totally broken down in the Biden administration at this point. Uh, how so? Uh, how is it broken well, down? Television doesn't work anymore. Nobody watches television. I mean, it works for some people in D.C., but the vast majority of the country doesn't really watch television. The, the television ecosystem has become has been eaten by the Internet, eaten by uh, Twitter, uh, and so and quite partisan. Uh, and so that you can't generate a single unified politics of television in the way that you could from Reagan until Trump. It begin, I think in Trump, it really begins to break down and definitively breaks down under Biden. Right, right. Yeah, so, so the kind of effectiveness, the effectiveness of kind of communicating through television is, is dropping. You can kind of see that by uh, the ratings as well. well, yeah, it's not just communicating television, it's also generating a politics of televisual narrative, a politics where you gain power by controlling the narrative on television, right? Trump is the first, Trump is the first figure, well, I don't know if he's the first figure who, who is a master of rerouting that narrative, but he certainly is a figure that elites in, in media and politics can't seem to figure out how to control via televisual narratives. And then in the Biden administration, there are at least some people who have, who have tried to use these techniques and fail. And it, it's not necessarily, you know, Biden's, I think, is a very interesting figure in the story. I think one of the reasons why he succeeds in 2020 is precisely that he has this kind of anti, anti-memetic, but almost anti-symbological character. Like, he can't be made into a television figure in quite the same way that Hillary Clinton could, the same way that Kamala Harris could. So I think we're, we are now moving definitively into a post-televisual era. Right, right. Like something, something that I think has been 
very interesting and very relevant to kind of political circles is that even like just compared to 2016, right, there seems to be a lot more of a shift from kind of political questions to like metapolitical questions, right? Like people aren't really talking mm-hmm. about, you know, like what should the kind of like, like 2016, the Democrats were talking about healthcare. Just 2020, you had a bit of that as well. 2016, even though like that wing lost, right? 2016, you had a lot of people talking about healthcare. You had a lot of people talking about housing on the left. On the right, you know, you had really kind of like pushing back on the kind of um, libertarian entitlement reforms. Um, you had uh, Trump and trade, of course. And I think the kind of slow evolution out of that, right, I think, and I think this is related, is that the internet just favors a kind of like, it doesn't favor the object level discussions. It doesn't favor the kind of discussions that are like, you know, here are the details of like what what funding programs we want to establish. It favors these kind of like grand sweeping mythologies instead. Um, do, do, do you think that that's the case? Do you think that that's the direction things are kind of heading? <laughs> Sorry. Well, but, yeah, I, I do think there's always, look, there's always been a, look, I mean, there's always been a tension between policy detail, you know, wonkery and popular politics. Like, oh, there's always been that problem. I think, you know, what you have, you know, if, if the politics of before Reagan was characterized by the kind of difference between the popular presentation and the backroom deal, the sort of the world of the smoke-filled room, the world where the American people are presented a kind of pat image that doesn't really comport with what's going on behind the scenes where decisions are really made, you know, the kind of world of, uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie Charlie Wilson's War, um, but it has this you know, fascinating depiction of life, uh, admittedly with a sort of bachelor playboy congressman. You know, this, this is the world, let me say, this is the world where John F. Kennedy can have numerous affairs and also be basically crippled. And the American people see, are shown, a faithful husband who's like athletic, you know. Um, then the, the world of the between the world of the 80s and present is a or at least until Biden administration is a world where the invisibility of regulation to media becomes a kind of superpower. So it's no longer just about that group deal. It's also there are certain kinds of policy issues which simply cannot be made interesting on television and therefore cannot become politically salient. Right. And I think we're at an interesting transition now on the internet where what matters is can an issue become salient within a internet community within a, Hmm. I mean, for lack of a better word, I mean, I like to call them reality-based communities or alternative realities, internet communities, internet cults, whatever you want to call them. And this is really interesting. And it's actually a way to re-inject the the world of political power that's embedded in the administrative state reinject that into politics. So, but the issue is that these things are kind of few and far between so far. So there there really isn't one for healthcare, and so therefore healthcare is this kind of impossibly boring, wonky issue. There is one for for Gimbyism, for housing, and right? So actually, right. like going to bring quite dorky yeah. housing policy stuff has become politically salient and even bipartisan in a way that it never was before. 
You know, I think this is what the Institute for Progress people are trying to do with meta-science, innovation policy, is build a kind of community around that. Um, you know, in a weird way, wokeness and CRT and DEI is becoming this on the right. There's, there's like a, you know, a nascent community of people who are very invested in these things and are, you know, drilling down. Like I think the other day, Center for the American Way of Life, the Fremont Institute's DC think tank, released like a quite lengthy, wonky report on CRT in Florida University, Florida public education system, right? And there's now a market for that kind of wonkery, for lack of a better word. So I think we're at a moment of transition now where the question is, what does it take? How do we learn to build these internet communities, communities of interest on the internet around different policy areas? Right. So, so this is kind of transition from, I think the way you put it last time, which was great, is like from one to many to like many to many yeah, communications, right. right? And yeah, this is, I think this is like a big kind of open question with, with the kind of era that we're living in now is like, yeah, you, you, you both simultaneously have these kind of, you know, there's, there's like the Stalin quotes, this, this kind of gets overused, but I think it's apt that like there are decades where nothing happens and years where decades happen. Right. There's this kind of, there's both this kind of like huge show, right. Where, where Mm -hmm. it seems like there, there's like a show there's like all of these kind of like political claims that happen. There's like the horse race, there's the typical media cycle. And like, really like underneath that is like literally nothing. And at the same time, right. Like there's at the end of the day, there are people who get into power and then the people who get into power have honest, like still quite a significant amount of influence, even just within kind of the executive branch, right? Where there are these kind of very substantive shifts that happen, like you said, based on basically like very interested kind of minorities, right? Very interested kind of like niche internet circles that end up getting this kind of policy into existence, um once again i think like it would be good to outline just just like go into more depth of like why is that right like what is the relationship between those two things between kind of many to many communications and like sort of cultishness ooh i mean that's that's a really important question and i think we need to be thinking a lot more about Cultish. My friend Michael Sakazis has, has recently published uh, a kind of synopsis of his thinking on on, many, on media, really digital media. And one of the, you know, item three is like we're all conspiracy theorists now. Item four <laughs> is no, actually we're all cultists now because we're not just doing this alone. We're actually. So I mean, I think the thing that with many to many is it's not it's not it's not the the whole set of the many to the whole set of the many. It's really, it's, it, there's this kind of self-sorting, almost autopoetic character driven, I think, by search, especially so, social media, which is search engine, a search engine for people, where the many sort themselves into different groups and the many aggregate around discrete kind of influencers and discrete, you know, would-be cult leaders, as it were. Um, I mean, the, the influencer as a kind of structurer of, of this media environment is really interesting. Um, and what it rewards is loyalty, right? 
right. the, the, the economic returns to providing something that a small number of people really want are now substantially greater than reaching the many, right? Like, yeah, it's true. It's, it's a very, t- very fringes of where you reach towards the universal, the kind of old school model of mass media maybe still works a little bit depending on the, depending on the medium. But just below that, there's a cliff. And, you know, below that cliff, reaching a niche audience, like getting more out of a niche audience gets you much more power, influence, money than mildly influencing a mass audience. Like, right. Like, I don't know. I haven't looked at the numbers to prove this, but like, I suspect that, for instance, you know, the guy behind Gundam Style, which was a massive, massive hit, billions of YouTube plays, Spotify streams or whatever. I expect he's like much, you know, not better off or probably worse off than a sort of mid-tier rock star musician with a really cult following. Yeah. Now, maybe it's not exactly right. true. This is like the thousand true fans. Following, whatever, but. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The thousand true fans, that's like a real economic phenomenon. And that is a new economic phenomenon. It's really hard to appreciate how new that that is. Right, right. In in what way is it just that the internet made these kind of like like if you had some kind of like television era method of just kind of organ and, and there kind of was this right actually universities kind of was this right of getting like highly concentrated interested people to to kind of all follow a kind of ideological movement, right? Um, like that was that was very successful. That was very successful in, in ultimately influencing government policy back then as well, right? It, it's just that with the internet, you've kind of seen this kind of ability to form these kind of niche movements um, to be like really kind of like democratized, right? To, to like actually be something that, you know, like random... YouTube influencer or Substack newsletter writer can do? Well, it's an interesting question here, which is where, where has the fad gone? Right. You, you had, you know, in the age of mass media, you have these really strong movements. I think my friend Lou Burgess would characterize them as mimetic movements around particular, you know, styles or ideologies or, or kinds of music or whatever. And, you know, they would sort of rise and fall over the span of half a decade or a decade. And what, one of the inputs of that, right, is our quite keen sense of the style of different decades. Like you can imagine in your mind, like, the men's and women's fashion styles, music styles, basically from the 1920s until 2000, right? And then it becomes impossible to imagine. Why? Like, what happened to that? And I think to go to your point about the universities, you know, if you look at the kinds of movements that are popular at universities, a lot of it, you know, has the feeling of this sort of mimetic desire to be, you know, in some way implicated in a kind of high status movement, high status ideology, right? And obviously that hasn't gone away. And if you look at what's going on at universities today, there, there seems to be something of that. But if you look out at the broader culture, I think what you see is also people finding communities communities that they otherwise never would have found. 
So I guess what I'm saying is during that prior period, you look at kind of communism or the new left or whatever kind of campus organizing you want to talk about. It's hard to say, like, was that people finding the, the most compelling ideologies or was it simply a kind of mimetic uh, cycle around high status beliefs? Because I think what's important is is that the 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 is the rise of the ideology that is tailored to you as much as possible. That's what's new. Right, right, yeah. Like the the hmm. maybe the thing is just that the kind of like inert internet versions of ideologies are are just ultimately more appealing, right? Like you would think of. Um, and of course there's a spectrum here, but you can think of on one side, kind of these kind of genuinely like militant, violent ideologies of the sixties compared to like, you know, internet posters today, right. Who might be, you know, who might be kind of talking about, you know, civil war or whatever. Right. But, but really like would not hurt a fly. Um, I, I think there's a kind of like, my intuition is just that the kind of like, the kind of LARP version is like genuinely more appealing, right? You don't have mm-hmm. to like the, I mean, maybe this is maybe too, much more simple of a point that kind of like not having to risk your life is kind of preferable to having to risk your life. Right. That, that like, basically the thing that's happening here is that there's like, there's like the real thing. And then there's the fake thing, or like there's the thing that's like kind of like pretending to be a kind of revolutionary ideology that isn't. And in, like, the 60s, you couldn't have access to the fake thing, right? There was just no kind of economies of scale for producing the fake thing as, like, a product for people to enjoy. And then, like, nowadays, so, so like, people gravitated to the real thing in absence of that. But nowadays, you have the fake thing. You know, in fact, you have many, many versions of the fake thing. You have, you know, recommendation algorithms to give you, like, the most personalized version of the fake thing. And people actually just per- simply prefer that to the to the kind of real, like, violent ideology. Well, I, I think there's something very important in what you just said that's very true. And, of course, it, it, it rhymes with what the Minutemen is doing in lots of other ways, of, of providing a kind of simulacrum of the thing that meets, that seems to satisfy many of the same desires at lower cost, more efficiently, more personalized. You know, what, what I'm tempted, you know, the, uh, there's, in um, Achebe Clausewitz, Battling to the End, uh, this is an interview with Rene Girard, and I, I've read it many times, but my uh, Justin Murphy just linked to it, and so that's why it's fresh in my mind. He's like, he describes the feeling that we're in the apocalypse, and the guy asked me, asked him, like, what do you mean? And his answer is very Girardian, which is basically that with the kind of demise of this Christian scapegoat mechanism, there is no longer, the, you know, Christianity kills the scapegoat mechanism, takes 2,000 years to die, but now it's gone and there's no vitality left in human civilization. There's no engine Hmm. driving it forward, and so we're going to endure this sort of long, dry spiritual decline, which he thinks is sort of the apocalypse. And I think, you know, if you look at those social movements, one of the things of the New Left, and by the way, the New Left wasn't violent overnight, but the New Left took, you know, four or five years to go from its kind of origins to taking over campuses, and then another few years to really kind of 
cultivate real violence. So that like the, the worst of the kind of new left violence is occurring in like the early to mid seventies. So it took a while, but nonetheless, I think you're right that, that, you know, before the internet, organizing people means organizing people, organizing them in person, organizing them as humans in embodied. And what that means is that any kind of social movement has this human social character to it, right? It's a movement that also immediately then leads to status, uh, you know, battling over status and hierarchy and voice and prestige and coolness at a more kind of primal level, battling over resources, battling over sex. And, you know, many, I don't think it's like the new left is taking place on newly co-ed campuses in most cases, right? There's this enormous right. sort of sexual tension hanging over those movements that I think is part of what, what leads them to violence. Like, it's hard to look, if you read accounts of new left, you know, organizations and cells that kind of became the weatherman or whatever, they, one, of the, one of the things that strikes you immediately is how sexualized everything was. Um, you know, none of these groups are single sex. They're all integrated and they're everybody sleeping with everybody. And so, you know, right, just that, like FTX. Well, yeah, but look at, no, 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 but look at FTX. FTX is the kind of almost the counter example, right? Where, you know, even the sex has become, isn't sexy, right? Like Caroline Ellison's talking about Sam Franklin Freed's polycule, right? It's completely drawn out and deracinated and, emptied and unerotic. There's no energy there anymore. Um, so I think there is something to that, that in replacing actual social movements, which not necessarily human first, with an intermediated version, we've actually sapped these movements of a lot of the energy and violence that they could lack. Right. And there's a kind of like, there's a kind of like positive view of this, right? That, you well, know, sure. At yeah. least we're not, yeah. At least we're not bombing each other anymore. Um, I would rather, you know, I prefer not to be bombed. If Gerard is right that we're in the apocalypse, I think we need to keep in mind Peter Thiel's recent dictum, right? To be at least as afraid of the Antichrist as we are of apocalypse. Right. So, so, so like, what is, the, what is this kind of idea of the apocalypse? Right. Like most people, you know, when they think of apocalypse, they think of, you know, some kind of huge natural catastrophe or war or really like a dramatic kind of physical event. Right. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm getting the, I, I don't know too much about Gerard. I, I, I'm getting the sense that this is not what he imagines. Well, it's funny earlier in his career, that is what he seems to have in mind. He writes about, I think in the context of nuclear escalation, he's very concerned about mimetic contagion between nuclear states leading to thermonuclear war, right? If, if in his model of mimetic contagion spirals of rivalry spirals towards annihilatory violence, then that looks, that hits different in the era of nuclear warfare. But at the very end of his life, he seems to have completely changed his tune about this. Um, but in any case, you know, I think there's a very good book, which I'm recommending to everybody. Joseph Pieper's book, The End of Time, a 1954 book about eschatology and philosophy of history. And he makes a point, which is very good, which is that, um, you know, the apocalypse is sort of taken out of context. But the apocalypse isn't just a synonym for any kind of cataclysm. 
it refers it ought to and principally does refer to an event that occurs within the framework of Christian theology. Um, and I think it's interesting, you know, it, one of the things that you see in the secular age, one of the, one of the problems of our age is that this idea of the apocalypse has been taken out of context and others have kind of been allowed to run amok to stand in for some kind of existential risk or existential. Or right, right. Threat. Many such cases. Many such cases. Yeah. So, you know, I think what Peter is doing with that phrase is, is maybe restoring the, the notion of apocalypse into his original context a little bit. Yeah. I, I do think the idea of the apocalypse has become a lot more, salient yeah i agree with you like a lot of the kind of existential risk stuff you know ai doom um uh nuclear war right Um, what's funny is nobody talked about the apocalypse before 1945 there's this period of people argue people argue but convincingly that between uh actually the Kant wrote in philosophy history at the end of the 18th century and the second world war no Western philosopher of history wrote about the apocalypse. Um, and then it makes this roaring comeback because of technological change. Right. So, I mean, I think in, I think in our society, this idea of apocalypse has become entangled with technology and our tools and our fears about our tools escaping our grasp. Yeah. So, so you know, like a big question is like simultaneously you have a lot of policy change being downstream of these kind of highly motivated niches. But at the same time, we still have elections, right? Mm -hmm. Like people still win and lose election or like people still like win and lose political power based on whether they can get, you know, like majority of people to vote for them. Right. Yeah. Like, that's true. so, So like, Is the consequence of this that people are just kind of like, even if, you know, there's like the kind of people who literally think, you know, like the election is stolen, it's not connected to power, right? But then there's the kind of more, you know, practical understanding of that of like, yeah, you have elections and, you know, whoever wins them, you know, maybe they're still, maybe whoever wins the most votes still assumes the role of president, but a lot of the kind of machinery of the executive branch, especially is kind of controlled by these sort of very loosely determined uh, appointments. It just seems like, you know, people don't, a very good example of this is the kind of like misinformation movement, right? There's just a lot less, there's a lot less respect for kind of like democracy in terms of just like the results of elections, the kind of idea, you know, like Americans democracy is the idea that, you know, the voters uh, should get what they want good and hard. Right. Yeah, H.L. Mencken, that's right. Yeah. Right. Like, like there seems to be much more of a kind of willingness to just kind of um, overrule people. Not necessarily, you know, like this might also not necessarily be wrong. Right. Like you might say, you know, like, how many of the electoral results of say, you know, they were going back and forth pretty much for a hundred years. How many of those were actually correct? Right. Like Mm. probably not more than half of them. Um, And there's just much, but there's a difference between kind of like believing that and kind of having this kind of open antagonism in the media, which I think, which I think is the kind of step change now. 
right? Where you have kind of like yeah. open antagonism towards the public. Well, it, ironically, part of this is because the media sort of hit, has to, itself bought into this misinformation narrative that the, that the election was hacked in 2016, that Putin fooled about used misinformation to fool a bunch of Americans into voting against their interests, which is a complete crock, and nobody who seriously studied the issue believes that. Um, right, many, right. In the media, many politics actually still, in our hearts, actually believe that narrative still. Um, yeah, I mean... Right, it's interesting. In 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 the nineteen forty forties or fifty, it might be earlier. At the kind of dawn of the mass media age, the political scientist Walter Lippmann, journalist, you know, writes this um, book on public relations. I think it's called Public Relations, the Public Opinion, maybe. Uh, and basically, it's about the problem of democracy in the, in the mass media age. How do you have a democracy in an age where it's impossible for any person, any certainly you wouldn't expect any kind of democratic layman to, like, you know, average man on the street, to really have the access to the information they need about all the aspects of government? So how do you include them meaningfully in a democratic government um, without surrendering the kind of power of expertise or the kind of technocratic dimension which you need to run a kind of complex society. And Lippmann's answer basically is the art of public relations and shaping public opinion. So, you know, in the, the public sphere will become dominated not by individual voices, but by, you know, experts, by, you know, these masters of the art of explaining things to the public. But, you know, for Lippmann, they have a kind of duty to present scientific accuracy, present facts, present, you know, the truth as they see it as experts to the public in ways that then allow the public to make an informed decision. So, you know, much later, Chomsky kind of, you know, denigrates this idea as kind of manufactured consent. And there is something to that, right? These experts are never really neutral. There is always kind of... Um, you know, uh, there was always contestation behind the scenes that was basically hidden from the public, in some cases in quite, I think, dramatic ways. And yet, to, you know, to, to speak well of Lippmann's accomplishment, you know, what he managed, what, what the Lippmann approach managed was to make revitalize democracy in an age of mass media, allow to create a framework that made democracy make sense in this new age. And I think our issue now is we don't have one, we don't have one of these, we don't have a framework for democracy in the age of the internet. And all misinformation is, is trying to shoo, shove the internet back into the box of television, back into the box of mass media. And it's not going to work. And it's lap, and the whole enterprise is pretty silly, if you ask me. I've, you know, I've been to these conferences, I've talked to these people, and like, they don't have a clue about how media really works. Or some of them do, actually. Some of the more cynical ones do. And they just want to use power to shove the internet back into a TV-shaped box. But I don't think it's going to work. Right. Something that really interested me that you said on Dimitri Kofinas' podcast is that we're kind of living in a unique moment where um, I think the exact quote I have it here is like, man is viewed as at the top of the cognitive food chain, right? Like the value of man is viewed as at the top of the cognitive food chain where, yeah, I think you have 
I mean, like, I'm, I'm quite young, even just a few years ago before I started paying attention to this and, you know, kind of apolitical software engineering life, you know, I could, it would have been hard for me to imagine anything else, right? You know, like, yeah, man is man, you know, man is at the position he is because he's rational, he was able to make tools, he was able to, you know, produce agriculture, so on. And of course, in the vast, you know, throughout most of human history, this is not how people conceptualized human value or human rights, right? Like this is not mm-hmm. how people kind of thought of thought of each other in society, but this is kind of increasingly, I think, how people see kind of, especially government, I think especially kind of like insiders in government see like, okay, you know, well, if people people have to be able to get to the right the point of democracy is that you know people are going to get the right answers if they're not getting the right answers or if you know if they're not getting the answers that agree with me then that's misinformation um mm-hmm. where they do view kind of democracy as this kind of cognitive process where i don't think that's that really is the case in reality right there, there's this kind of contradiction happening yeah, well so, so, yeah, so, so in on the sorry you go. Yeah, so, so I guess the question here, the, the question here, you know, at the same time, I kind of, like, get it and empathize with it, right? I kind of have, have had that experience of thinking this way. But, like, what are the factors? What are the kind of, like, technological factors that actually lead people into thinking like this, right? Well, that's very simple. Um, I mean, I think that this is a whole Enlightenment model, right? Because so the Enlightenment model which, you know, rests on a kind of metaphysics of doubt and a metaphysics or hermeneutic of doubt, a metaphysics of, of the knowable, that which is scientifically knowable, that which is accessible immediately through some of, you know, the senses and principally through the visual sense. You know, this leads to a world in which humans are alone, right? Humans are maybe you've got some kind of deist god, but he kind of, he sits out there in the ether, doesn't really do anything. He's best understood as a kind of prime mover. And then it's humans and animals and all the other things that humans are at the top of the food chain. And what makes humans so great is how smart they are, how, 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 how they're able to use their reason to understand the universe, to use the reason to unlock the book of nature and Francis Bacon's term, you know, unlock, a priori mathematical principles and all, et cetera, et cetera, right? So this is part of what creates what Charles Taylor calls the buffered self, the self that, you know, the, the, the kind of, the, the kind of Cartesian self, right? The, the right. cognitive ergo sum, uh, which even if you, you know, you know, I think therefore I am, even if you begin with this principle of radical self-doubt and then you reject it and you say, well, actually I'll, you know, other people are real too. Nonetheless, the kind of, center of that hermeneutic is the individual, the individual, the, the, which is in, un, indivisible, right? That's literally the root of individual. Like the, the, the center, the person has a singularity of rationality, a singularity of mind that can't be centered, that can't be fragmented, that is the judge of the universe. Um, so I, I mean, one can argue that this view of the, the human is quite also tied to the kind of nominalist or voluntarist picture of of god but that's a separate discussion so what happens in the internet is actually i actually don't think ai is kind of the first blow to this i think the first blow to this is sort of 
the algorithmic self. What Gilgamesh right. is called the individual. The way that our identity becomes increasingly exposed to systems that bring information to us and that reshape us. We, we are conscious of ourselves as being reshaped. We're conscious of ourselves as being recontextualized in our identity based on whatever platforms we happen to be using, whatever systems we're trying to access. Um, and then on top of this, now we have AI. Now we have generative systems, which evidently you know, can solve many problems more better than 95% of humans that are artistic and creative. And by the way, which will only be getting better. So, you know, in, you know, going up against an AI, the average human, not even the average human, you know, two, you know, the, the, the spectrum of humans up to two standard deviations above the average in 10 years will not be confident of besting an AI in any particular task. And maybe there'll be some, but maybe there'll be some tricks. Maybe there'll be some, some, some route arounds, uh, you know, some ways of hanging up the AI or confusing it or otherwise getting at what you need out of it. Right. That kind right, of even like the current level of technology, right? Like just G, uh, G, oh G4. yeah, we already do this, right? Yeah. We already do this with search. We already do this with like the like you know the note hack of like oh Google won't give me what I want. Let me add Reddit to it, and then it'll find it on Reddit, and that's that'll be what I want. We already negotiate with these systems in a way. Uh, we're already we've already ceded a fair amount of sovereignty uh, in our kind of cognitive space. And I think this is the source of the anxiety about, like, I don't think it's at all a coincidence. It's not at all a coincidence that it was the rationalist community that was the sort of seedbed for existential terror about artificial intelligence. Like, that's the community of people who already define themselves as, you know, uh, human, like, you know, human brain, human minds running on meat, meat computers that are trying to upgrade their software. And wasn't that literally like less wrongs, like motto for a while was like something around upgrading their software. <laughs> um, so of course these people feel threatened by this system. Their model of the human is already mechanical. Right. You, you are the unaligned AI. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Like another great quote from uh, the podcast with Dimitri Kofinis, uh, the Hidden Forces podcast, is that uh, you said that medieval societies would be much more equipped to deal with uh, machine learning, right? Would be much more yeah. equipped to deal with the internet and these algorithms. Uh, make the make the more detailed case for that. Yeah, yeah, and I have to, you know, this notion of the, the digital retrieves medieval. This is like the McLuhanian analysis from the Center for the Study of Digital Life. Guys like Mark Stallman, Andrew McLuhan, James Poulos. Um, Peter Berkman. So I can't claim it's original. Um, and, and also Michael Sakasis in a great essay called The Analog City, The Digital City kind of makes this case as well. I mean, so go, go back to that picture of the buffered self, right? The enlightenment buffered self man believes that man is alone in the universe, basically. Certainly there are no supernatural forces. Certainly there, there's nothing above his mind. There's nothing his mind cannot grasp. Um, you know, it's his decision making is, is sovereign and individual um, and scientific. Uh, and so encountering a system of alien intelligence that he had to negotiate with would be sort of would be weird. Encountering a world in which his mind, which 
things are constantly being brought to attention and pulling his mind here or there that he couldn't, that he didn't control and couldn't understand and couldn't get to the bottom of. That would be strange. Being told to take on faith, the, you know, the, the outputs of a black box system, but also strike him as deeply wrong and misguided. Like, you know, what's the, the model of the Royal Society is nullius in verbum. Take no one's word for right. it. That includes an AGI decision system, right? So he would find this very right. weird. Yeah. But the, um, in the medieval world, a world where you assume the presence of and importance of angels and demons, but also of fairies and sprites of varying levels of malevolence or benevolence and various levels of intelligence, of a kind of an active God. Um, you know, these things, basically everything, if you look around the technological world and all of these powers, uh, magical systems out of fairy tales, are we're building them, right? You know, I think that Arthur C. Clarke quote about advanced technology being indistinguishable from magic you know, he meant it in a kind of snide way. I think it goes both ways. I think, and I think that you look back at all the warnings embedded in how we thought about magic, and you can apply many of them to technology. You know, what is a paper? What is the paperclip maximizer except the Sorcerer's Apprentice? It's literally the same thing, <laughs> right? You know, so in a world in which you're concerned about the Sorcerer's Apprentice and and fairies leading you astray and uh, where you're using prayer or, or the sign of the cross or other kinds of liturgy to ward off evil spirits or ward off or regain control of one's attention or one's mind. Like, that's very familiar, I think, with where we are today. And they would find it very familiar. Um, right, right. So, so like, the, there's this kind of view. Yeah, there's this kind of view of the kind of AGI as, like, oh, if, if, if there is any force that's more powerful or kind of more cognitively capable than you then you know it's it's all over right there's there's no yes. you know you'll get stomped out like ants or so on and so forth right um where that really is and, and what's most interesting about that is you know like that's that's sort of already been the case for many years right there's mm-hmm. there are super intelligences that are essentially kind of made up of humans, right? You made a yes. similar point there. Yes. You know, this has been a kind of, one of the themes of this show, right? With a lot of the guests here is, you know, like, like Richard Bruns said on this show, bureaucracy is the original unaligned super intelligence, right? Like it, it is the case that, you know, you had versions of this that people were simply not all that fearful of, or that, like, quite frankly, like, it was just a completely different set of people who were fearful of them, you know? Like, maybe Alex Jones was fearful of the kind of corporate superintelligence. Mm-hmm. But it was not, you know, it was not, like, less wrong. It's not the rationalists who were kind of really afraid of them, right? Yes. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It, it, well, and, you know, I think it's interesting. You know, there's a way in which, like, rationalism is like one of the most blind, this is not a new point, rationalism is one of the most blind ideologies there is because it begins from the premise of limiting one's ability to know the world down to a very small number of senses and epistemic tasks, right? Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, it's people who who were more, you know, people open to more holistic kinds of explanations were... Able to, or already seeing the kinds of superintelligence embedded in capitalism, corporations, the state, whatever you know, you name it. Um, 
and it's only invisible to sort of the rationalists. And the AGI is the kind of return of the repressed of this problem, I think, for the rationalists. Right, right. Like, really big, or like, I, I should say there there are some exceptions, right? There's like Freemoshowitz, who've, def- who've had on the show, who've thought, you know, long and hard about, you know, corporate incentives and that kind of uh, alignment as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like how yeah. how much, you know, how much there was a kind of like vibe shift between, you know, so, and, and like even like Elizer Yukowski, right, who's a big mm-hmm. kind of AI doom guy. He, he wrote this book called Inadequate Equilibrio, which was looking at some of these um, similar questions. Like there was a kind of like, there was a little bit of discussion but it was not it was not nothing anything like the level of kind of certainly like emotively it was not anything like mm-hmm. the kind of doom surrounding ai risk as well right like yeah um, right like the big thing that i'm trying to decode here is like at what point was the mistake made right like you can kind of think of like like the kind of tale not just within the rationalists but kind of in you know kind of mainstream society is like oh people had these kind of ways of reasoning about things and you know they were all sorts of silly and they they were all like you know they believed that they were like spirits controlling the weather when really it was you know it it Mm. was just the kind of like natural you know predictable cycles Mm. right like there's this kind of idea that this this way of reasoning with these things is wrong or at least kind of like, you know, at least not. There's this kind of like Petersonian interpretation as well. That's like, you know, they were they were like metaphorically true, right? Even if they were literally mm. false. Um, but at the same time, right? Like, like there's obviously some kind of benefit that people gained from that. Mm. And, you know, arguably a lot of benefit people can gain from that by thinking in the same way about algorithms, right? Or by thinking about the same way about technologies that like we can no longer control today. Yeah. No, there's a brilliant little book by Bruno Latour called on the modern cult of the factish gods, where he makes a very similar point. Um, And, you know, he, uh, he contrasts the kind of approach of agency and structure that, you know, a hypothesized sort of so-called primitive, you know, might have toward the fetish god and the sort of modern approach. So the, the you know, the, the, the primitive believes, so you so-called primitive native aboriginal believes that his, the fetish god is an agent in the world, that it actively is blessing and cursing him, it's responding to what he has done, uh, and that he has to kind of, Acknowledge you contend with its agency in the world, right? And then the modern comes along and says, oh, that's rubbish. It's just a piece of wood. But then you ask the modern, like, what motivates you? What drives you? What shapes your desire? What shapes you? And they end up reducing and reducing and reducing rationally until they arrive at purely imminent psychological forces embedded in the subconscious or purely sort of macrostructural economic forces embedded in sort of society at the big highest level neither of which they exercise any control over. So in this paradoxical hmm. sense, using this kind of critical faculty of, of in, interrogating the agency of the so-called, the so-called fetish objects, they end up fetishizing the psychological or the structural in ways that actually prevent them from taking any agency over them. Whereas the so-called primitive 
by imbuing the fetish god with agency, is then able to actually act towards it in a meaningful way. That I've often right. this analysis is sort of all around us, and there's an interesting way in which you know the kind of the kind of um, arbitrariness or uh, or um, uh, the arbitrariness of the algorithm might, in a sense, allow us to think begin to think this way again in a useful useful way. Yeah, like. It's only my fourth to encounter with this kind of agency. Yeah, like like the big contradiction there is like, I mean, at least I, I'm like somewhat convinced of this is that the kind of like, the kind of regressions are sort of correct, right? Like when people say you know, like for example, like political belief is is like very is like highly heritable, right? Especially after controlling for kind of exposure to to like what quantity of information you're exposed to right like like yeah. that would be true right like but at the same time it's sort of yeah it, there, there's a sort of kind of like condemning there, there's a kind of like nihilism that that people like condemn themselves to that i don't mm-hmm. think is like actually an implication of like doing the regression correctly right Whereas it's sort of like, yeah, yeah. Like if you take like the kind of like limited, the limited framing of things, right. If you take like, for example, like the big thing there is like, of course, you know, even though those kind of like attitudes towards the same questions within the Overton window, you know, like how people position themselves relatively might be true, right. You're going to get like a, you know, like, even if you have the same kind of set of personality aspects and some people are going to lean conservative and some people are going to not, right? Like, the kind of practical policy result of that is going to be extremely different today than in, like, the 1800s, right? It's just night and day. Like, obviously, the, the kind of, like, obviously there are political changes are possible with regards to that. Um, so, so there's this kind of... I don't know, because, like, on one hand, I don't think it's intentional, right? Like, there's this kind of process that happens where, yeah, like, like kind of rationalist types kind of find themselves studying exactly the things that, like, maybe this is just, like, a kind of truth about the world, that the kind of things that are most measurable are the things that are, like, most disempowering, right? Like, Mm. the things that you have control over are just kind of, like, hard to measure, right? Like maybe that's like yeah, kind of but 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 but, but but right. The, I mean the the the, the hyper enlightenment, the sort of the high modernist step is to denigrate something that you can immediately perceive but simply can't measure, right? Right. right that's yeah. the funny thing. Is there are things there are things in the world that we immediately intuit and perceive about ourselves, about others that are difficult or impossible to measure, and then the modernist step is to just throw them away simply because we can't immediately perceive them. And the funny thing is, is, uh, you know, in a weird way, we're kind of regaining these through the, the, the kind of, uh, the sort of underlying mathematical structure of artificial intelligence is in Hmm. some way revivifying these because you can, you know, you can use machine learning to define feature sets that don't appear to kind of, they can't be named that exist in a kind of latent space. 
but it's just you know it's this weird thing where like why can we why why can we pretend that latent space a feature set existing in latent space is real, but my feelings or perceptions or judgments about the world are not. It's it's ludicrous. So hopefully we'll we'll begin to trend back towards reality through this kind of high, very holistic approach to the structure of of the world that that machine learning uses. Right. To kind of to kind of like steel man the modernist argument, right? Like there are kind of like misperceptions and like yes, flaws sure. of recollection. Like like those are those are like real things that happen. Yes. Right? Those kind of cognitive distortions. <clears throat> Um, yeah, but like, it does kind of like forgetting about that entirely make, make things better. Yeah, I agree with you that I don't think that's the case. Um, right. Like, so, so I think the thing we're, we're both pursuing here is like synthesis, right? Mm -hmm. They are like, we shouldn't underrate, or at least I, I don't think we should underrate, the kind of positive things, just, just the kind of, you know, like techno, like the biological, physical innovations that we have, you know, like the classic, you know, we have heating and air conditioning, right? It's, it's not like this is the modernist way of thinking has gotten us nothing, but at the same time, there, there is also something that's been lost here, right? So, so how do we kind of, is there a way to get the best of both worlds, right? Is there a way to kind of return to this way of thinking, at least about kind of, you know, things where it's most appropriate. Um, is, is that possible, right? Or do you have to end up choosing one one way or the other? Hmm. I mean, it's an interesting question. I think that the... I, I have a, the next issue, the next essay in my series in the New Atlantis will be on the the rise and fall of the fact and what happens when facts become data. And the underlying principle is the principle of the superabundance of facts in the modern age. We have so much, we have such an access to fact-making capability, to data, that we're sort of drowning in it. And one implication of this is um, we can use facts to tell lots of different kinds of stories. And it becomes much more difficult to simply assess the, ver the veracity of any position simply based on the number of facts that are kind of allied behind it. Um, and in addition, you know, the other kind of institutions of epistemic institutions in society are also kind of breaking down. So the reason I'm saying this is I think one kind of potential solution to what you're discussing is the kind of that, you know, The, the, the ultimate vibe shift was the shift back towards vibes, the shift back towards <laughs> intuitions, the shift back towards looking at something in the whole and not being deterred when somebody came up to you and said like, well, well, actually the experts say like actually has never had lower currency in our society. So I think that's a good thing. And I think that that's kind of one of the ways in which more diverse ways of thinking are coming back into prominence. Right. So, yeah, I'm not sure how much time you have left, but this is something that I promised, right? Like, th this is maybe a fun kind of practical way of doing this. So, or like thinking about, you know, this kind of media shift is that, you know, recently back in the news, we had the January 6th hearings, we had, you know, Tucker airing, you know, the unaired footage of 
um, uh, I'm blanking on the man's name, but you know, like the 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 January sixth shaman, you know, mm-hmm. walking yeah, yeah, yeah. walking in the halls, escorted by the police, right? Like like the January sixth hearings. I think you actually brought up this point, right? That that they were kind of like these this like classic, you know, like television era performance, right? Mm-hmm. And it was like you know similar to um, the Clinton impeachment or, you know, I, I don't remember the other examples, but, but like in this kind of lineage of these kind of like made for TV, you know, like primetime specials, even though, you know, primetime doesn't matter anymore. It's not the same kind of environment that we're in. So like the question is, right? Like if you were like solely maximizing for impact, Right, if you were the kind of like House Committee for January sixth, and you wanted to put up like a YouTube series, right, that 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 kind of like told the story in the most effective way possible, right, like like what aspects of that would you change from, uh, from the kind of existing, um, first of all, kind of like describe some of the existing features that kind of make it a kind of like television era thing, and then like what would you change? Like what? What would I change if I wanted to like design a like digital era equivalent of like the January six hearings? Yeah, like, yeah, like yeah. let's say you wanted to make like a YouTube series of it, right? <laughs> well, we're talking about that's achieving the effects. I mean, so the, I mean the, the whole the whole construction of the January six hearings was tele was based on like television, the ideas of wielding power that come from the televisual age. Right, it was literally right. described. It was it was they were literally scheduled during prime time. Like the here, you know, clue number one, they literally scheduled them during prime time. But like prime time, like a category of media that ceased to be relevant at least ten years ago. Right, like there's no prime time on the internet. Like when's the last time you watched something in prime time? Because that was just the time you watched television. Like insane. Like nobody lives like not even boomers really live like that. So that was the first clue. And then the whole kind of way they did the staging of it was all about generating these kind of dramatic televisual moments, the way they did witnesses. You know, very little of it, very little of it migrated over to social media, as far as I can tell, in any kind of organic way anyways. You know, I didn't see any TikTok memes about the January 6th hearings. Um, so, yeah, the whole thing, front, front to back, was was based on this older way of thinking about power. And what that created was this really dramatic gulf between the people for whom this was must-see TV, and I know some of those people, and then the rest of the world, and the rest of America. And it wasn't really, it wasn't really political. I mean, it, basically what you had is people who were, who were addicted to like the MSNBC alternative reality community, for whom this was like the big event, the Super Bowl of their community, and then everybody else, you know, including, you know, millions of people who vote Democratic and, you know, maybe don't, you know, don't like, obviously didn't like January 6th or the president, whatever, but just couldn't be bothered. And I talked to a number of other, I was talking to a number of other uh, folks sort of my age who, again, were, you know, the folks I was speaking with voted Democratic, didn't like Trump, obviously abhorred the January 6th attack. And we're just exhausted by the idea from their parents that they needed to watch the hearings for the sake of democracy. It was like extremely boomer era notion of like, you need to be an informed citizen by watching television. 
Um, so yeah, now how would I, I mean, I think the way that Tucker is using the footage is very, is much savvier, right? It's aimed at his base. He's not really trying to give anybody a fair shake. Not that the hearings did. Um, he's just trying to produce something that speaks to a particular political need and, and complicates the kind of narrative that the rest of the media is telling. Now, if I were, as it happens, I actually know some of the people who are running the January 6th hearings. If I were trying to like do what they were trying to do for the internet, I mean, that's a tough one. Well, I mean, well, actually, we don't, no, 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 it's not tough. We actually know what to do, which is what Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez did. I mean, un- an unbelievably effective, you know, she sent this video out about how scared she was during the attack. And it completely set the tone, certainly for anyone left to center, about what January 6th meant, about the danger that it posed. Even though, you know, later it was revealed that she was never under really any immediate threat, that she was in a different building or whatever. That kind of raw authenticity, direct reach to the audience, setting the narrative was very effective. And you might ask, well, you know, that only reached her side of the aisle or, you know, only persuaded her side of the aisle. But this is what it means to live in a fragmented media space. There's nothing that you can do to really create a overarching narrative that's going to persuade everyone the way that you used to be able to do in the age of television. I don't think there's anything you can do to rebuild that. Right, right. It's just like heavily kind of multimodal. Yes. Right? Like, like, like this is what it would look like to create, you know, like a very immersive kind of like January 6th experience. Right? Is that you would have kind of all of these Democratic senators or staffers or representatives, you know, like do the same thing, right? So you can be scrolling through your TikTok feed, you know, you see AOC. Maybe you you, you like jump on something like completely different afterwards, right? And yeah. then you have like this different congressman saying like, oh, here, here's how I felt, giving that kind of like really like hard hitting kind of like first person point of view. And you have this as a kind of like. Yeah, almost kind of like, as you say, like a kind of alternate reality game, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where you have like these kind of drops, these kind of like, you know, individual packets of yep. just like, you know, 30 seconds in now, here's my experience, right? Yeah. So you, know, sure you have like a lot of people day. who are genuinely, like, who are genuinely like hiding and genuinely, you know, like afraid for yep. their lives at that moment too. So it's not even like completely fake. Yeah. Well, the other thing you could do is, is, Again, so you know, what 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 look they think in this new fashion? And one of the interesting things that happened on January sixth was there were, as you might know, there were people who were there who were Twitch streaming, like live streaming the with right, the right. Or whatever. And then you know you had left wing, like left of center political groups organizing to jump on these streams, record them, use facial recognition software to like identify people. It was very ARG like. You know, one thing you know if you were you want to be savvy, you know, what Nancy Pelosi could have done when she was, you know, the speaker would have been to release the footage, release it all. Because what's going to happen? Yes, like Tucker and others are going to, they're going to, they're going to cut the footage. The right's going to cut the footage to show things as like innocuous to show police officers letting people do stuff, you know, ordinary, like whatever, right? You know, some people helping people. Yeah. But then all the people on your side are going to do the opposite, right? You'll give them ammunition to find the most, like, deranged, the most feral, the most scary, horrifying, whatever footage. And so the funny, right. you know, the, 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 the Democrats have to do this televisual strategy of control the footage, 
control the narrative. And then, you know, one little leak of the footage and their narrative is like blown to hell, right? A more kind of post-reality approach would have been to release all the footage and let your, your team play along. Right, right. And, and like the recognition, like this, this is great because like there's the recognition of the kind of like base reality there, right? That that it's a much more energizing issue. Like, like yeah, sure, like Tucker producers are going to do their stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, a lot more left-wing people care about January 6th than right-wing people, right? It, it, it's, it's like this classic kind of... You're, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's this classic version of a wedge issue where like, you know, a lot of Republican kind of elites, especially, right? They're kind of like, and for good reason, in many cases, like disgusted with this kind of behavior, right? Whereas, you know, like, you know, you can be a socialist, you can be a kind of neoliberal, you know, you can be a Biden voter, you can be a Bernie voter and really be united on this, right? Like, yeah, like this, this, this kind of strategy where you basically take the events that are, you know, that are very salient and are basically like advantage that are like asymmetrically advantageous to one side, mm-hmm. and you kind of just put them out there in a kind of cloud. Yes, right. Like yes. That, that's the kind of media strategy. I think. Well, it's, it's kind of it's almost like a weaponized version of um, what's his name, David not Barr, the Democratic strategist who got canceled. In the David Shore. Shore. Yeah, his notion of his like political salience work. It's like a very weaponized version of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and part of the problem for January 6th was it was a high salience issue, but only for a very narrow subset of voters. Um, and so then the real challenge is how do you how do you find the events and narratives that are going to be high salience for the people you want to reach, and how do you boost those? And that's why and that's why the right wing has been much more effective at this. I think you know because hmm. the right lost control of television at least 20 years ago, if not longer. There's been a much quicker adoption of thinking with these strategies on the right than on the left, where powerful media elites are still kind of trying to hold on to the power they have via these these kind of establishment mainstream media institutions. Uh, how, how so? Like, what what's an example of the right doing this effectively? Well, I mean, I think I mean. Well, maybe by the way I'm thinking of Tucker Carlson. I don't know if you read my piece how sort by Tucker in New Atlantis, but right, um, right. I think Tucker's been very effective at taking and boosting the narratives. Well, another thing is Chris Rufo. Chris Rufo's enormously effective at hmm. identifying politically salient issues, boosting them in, in, in salient ways to achieve policy goals, to achieve earned media. Um, you know, we could probably go on. Uh, those those come to mind. Like right. I think it's an interesting contrast between like the contrast between the kind of Democrats politicking around January sixth and the Republicans politicking around like CRT is quite interesting. And then I think I think certainly in terms of bipartisan outreach, like you know the the Republicans really move the needle on not just their base but also independents on CRT. In a way, the Democrats did not succeed in doing the January sixth. But you you don't think the January sixth? I, I think like the presentation was not necessarily great in terms of the hearings, but I think you know like electorally, and, no, and of course no, it's hard to it's hard to if you look at measures of uh, ranking of electoral importance, January sixth 
made sustained really high for Democrats, and it was quite low for independents, and obviously for Republicans. Right, that's fair. That's fair. Um, not, yeah, I mean, I don't think the I'm not saying the average independent is like sympathetic necessarily to the right wing narratives about January 6th. I just don't think they care very much about it. And it's not a yeah. salient issue, and the Democrats, Democrats have not been able to use media strategy to make it make it a salient issue. Because maybe one of right. maybe one of the kind of lessons of this new media environment is you can't make an issue salient. Like in television era, you could make right, an right, issue yeah, salient. Very important. Whereas I don't think you can actually make an issue salient anymore. But I think you can find salient issues much more easily. Yeah, yeah, like right. I I think this is why there, there's going to be a kind of leaning towards populism one way or the other is that like yeah it's sort of populism is the sort of kind of like you know they they are the kind of like most naturally salient ideas right like both economically left-wing and um socially right-wing or at least like in this moment right like i don't don't think like right-wing positions on abortion are particularly kind of like naturally compelling but you know like kind of culture war issues Right. Like that that's going to be where that kind of like where you can really get that kind of traction there. And hmm, like like what I mean, yeah, I think we're still kind of really reckoning with this. Like like oh, something that I'm frustrated by is that, you know, you, you have this kind of new strategy environment. It, it seems like a lot has changed in the mm-hmm. past you know, like eight years, it seems like just like, like the field, like maybe this is just because I'm relatively young, but it seems like the field of kind of like electoral kind of political science has just gotten much more cynical and much more like kind of correctly cynical. Right. Um, Simultaneously, looks like, you know, we have Trump versus Biden again and like maybe DeSantis. Right. Like, it just seems so static. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of kind of innovation in how, you know, these campaigns are actually run. Well, so I'll leave you on this note, maybe a cheery note. You know, I think there is certainly at the kind of senior levels, I mean, you know, between looking at average age in Congress or in the executive branch, looking at reruns of, you know, Trump, Biden, Clinton's, Bushes, it, it seems very static there. But I think if you if you zoom in a little bit, if you look at where about donor patterns, if you look at voting patterns, if you look at voting like electoral patterns, but also voting patterns within the House of Representatives, within the Senate, um, if you look at policy discussions, there's actually I think things have really kind of come unstuck in the last four years. And it's not clear where it's going yet. And I, you know, I don't know if I buy any particular alignment hypothesis, except to say that there is a certainly a kind, some kind of realignment going on in American politics. So I think the next few, four years will actually maybe have a lot more. I, I think I think a dynamic political movement, or more than one, is brewing, and it will kind of explode into public view in the next certainly in the next ten years. Right, but like, where where is the kind of media strategy there? Right, like maybe yeah, the media strategy is old media people buying, retiring, and young media people who are internet natives kind of coming into it. 
Uh, not only yeah. coming into it, but also having principles that are comfortable. With it. I think the I think the hang up right now is that the principles themselves aren't really comfortable with it in many cases, right? Like yeah, the Congress people, like, the, you know, like you know, the Biden administration can bring in like a random TikToker for the day, but Joe Biden <laughs> can, like do something on TikTok. You know what I mean? I mean, not just for national security reasons, but um, so I think that 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 that'll be the kind of change, and I think it'll happen in the next few years. We'll begin to see it in meaningful ways. Okay. Uh, so last question of the show, uh, always the last question of the show. Um, what is something that's too much order and needs more chaos and something that's too much chaos and needs more order? Okay. So for, for this is a new last question. Um, so what is something that's too much order that needs more chaos? Um, uh, well, I mean, let's just say like, like, Political political thinking about like election strategy, like we right. need to be trying. People need to be trying more interesting, different electoral strategies. I think we've sort of we've been circling the drain of a, a few like analytics driven strategies for a while now. Well, something that has too much chaos but needs more order. I mean, there's so many things one could say. <laughs> um, well, yeah, you know, having spent a little time outside the U.S., like American like urban planning, like. Well, we have too much order in the sense of too much like zoning and things, but also we have like, you know, I, I, we need somehow. If, if there's a way to somehow bring back more sort of serious thinking about building the kinds of cities you want to build, but also doing it in a way that actually is is pro building, that would be because you have the, you have this weird situation where you can't build creatively, but you can build whatever you want as long as it's not creative. You end up with cities of like big box stores. Like you can build any kind of big box store you want, but you can't build a you know mixed use housing development. That's chaotic and that's like chaotic evil. So let's fix it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Brian. And I'm sorry to have to run, but I really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, I really enjoyed it too. All right. That was my episode with John Escanis. Like I said at the very beginning, if you like the show, you can subscribe to get a new episode every week. And if you'd like to further help us out, then let a friend know. You can do that online or in person. If you'd like to do something else to help the show, you can leave a five-star review on any podcast app. And you can leave comments and suggest future episodes either in those reviews or in the From the New World substack. That's at cactus.substack.com. And there, not only will you find this podcast, but you'll also find newsletter articles on artificial intelligence and political theory. 